you said that uh, you said that I, I'll never think about the audience. If someone gives me a marketing report, I throw it away. Given that a lot of the marketing reports around this are sort of made headlines, I don't know if that was easy this time to sort of pull yourself away from the huffing and puffing that Hollywood sometimes does to it's look for a It's all speculation. Story. Nobody knew what they were talking about. I knew what we have, and I know what it's like for people once they see the movie. And it's always been like, people forget that there's been speculation uh, there was so much in front of Toy Story. There was so much in front of Nemo. There's so much in front of Wally for me. I mean, they forget it the minute they see the movie and like it. Then it's like they're they're brainwashed and they forget all the doubt and speculation prior. It's it's they don't realize that from our standpoint, that's just kind of always been par for the course. It seems to be that everybody always asks for something original. Yet, when somebody starts doing that, then it's doubt, 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 doubt until it comes out. It's this weird catch-22. Fans, welcome to another exciting episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is the movie podcast where we take a stroll down memory lane and revisit some movies that bombed in the theaters or didn't do so hot with critics. I'm your host, Troy, and with me is my partner in crime, Brad. Brad, happy Sunday. How are you doing? Doing great, man. Big week for us on the podcast, by the way. What, why is that? Well, you got reached out by uh, Kung Fu Bob yes. and said... Thank you for all the kind words that we said, which was kind of surreal. Um, you know, listenership is way up. So it's I've been excited to talk to you today because it's like, you know, every once in a while you get that incentive where things are just like, oh, this is working and we're like a well-oiled machine now. Well, sort of. I, <laughs> well, as, I, as much as two <laughs> dumbasses can be. Yeah, I, I do want to go on record and apologize. So I, I had to edit Uh-oh. the episode. No, listen, I was listening to the episode and I, I, you know, thank you for all the kind words of people coming back and um, talking about Jackie Chan. It's one of my favorite subjects to talk about outside of myself. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, I, I was going back and listening to, you know, some of the audio. and <laughs> I, I do sound like I'm jacked up on caffeine or sugar or something. So I, I do want to apologize. I, I was, was just in another it, world. It was sweet. Well, and just... I, I put a little compilation together just to give everybody an idea real quick of, of what it sounded like if you haven't listened to that episode. So if you want a sense of what Troy uh, is like talking about the subject of Jackie Chan, here you go. I'm going to scissor kick you in the back of the head. Chip, I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey. Chip, I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's, there you go. That, yeah. You were all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Yeah, I came at you like a spider monkey with all those Jackie Chan trivia facts. So, uh, hey, we get to do it again next year, hopefully. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. I've already got my movie I'm excited for too. it. I'm already... Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, today, however... Yes. We are talking about John Carter, a.k.a. John Carter of Mars, a.k.a. one of Walt Disney's uh, biggest flops of all time. Um, yes. It, it was released as John Carter, not John Carter of Mars, which I find a little bit weird. Uh, but anyway, um, I thought what we would do to start off sort of last crusading this episode is talk about how film studios make money. Because 
we always talk about bombs and, and what happens. And we are strictly looking at it on a revenue side generated from ticket sales. Right. Ticket sales is only um, part of the equation. There are historic movies that have bombed, but have caught uh, second wind on DVD, things like that. Now, I will say DVD sales is not what it used to be. We've talked, um, I think, in the past that in the heyday of the early 2000s, you could release anything. And after its uh, theatrical run, add another 20 to $25 million to its revenue generated by DVD sales. Um, That is now cut in, I think, a about 75%, I think a good sale of a DVD or a DVD, a Blu-ray or something like that is like $5 million. So they're yeah. losing that revenue on the back end. And full disclosure, there, there's three home media formats out there now. There really is DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K. DVD is still the number one seller. Blu-ray is second, and 4K really only takes up a small percentage. It, it barely, depending on what week you look at, you know, it, it might get up to, I don't know, eight, 7%. I mean, there aren't a lot of 4k, um, disc sales that are going on in the market. It, it is very much a niche market. And to your point, Brad, if you're going back to, you know, two thousands or, you know, it, any, I would say anytime before about 2010, cause the interesting thing that we're going to get into with John Carter is around 2010 studios were starting to recognize where, people were watching their films and you know the digital footprint is really starting to play uh as a major factor in some of the decisions so keep that in mind too so what you're talking about in terms of revenue i I mean we we throw the term dvd around but if you go and look at the charts dvd is still the number one seller it it outpaces blu-ray and 4k like two to one it's it's insane because we (laughs) i kind of scoff at dvd like dvd who still has dvds and the majority of people actually still have DVDs. Yes. So, you know, they moved from VHS and that was probably a slow, painful migration for them. And once they moved over to DVD, that was it. You know, it's uh, the people who buy three TVs their whole life. I mean, how many, how many TVs have you bought in the last 10 years? Cause for me, it's been a lot. So let's not get on that in the air yeah. <laughs> because just in case she who must be obeyed ends up listening, we, we don't need to talk about that. Okay. So <laughs> I put together and I was way too excited to talk about finance finances of, of, of movie studios, but it's kind of what I do. So I was really excited. So this afternoon I put together a little slideshow. No, not really. I just <laughs> kind of made some notes here about um, where revenue was generated. And then we'll talk about gross profit versus net profit, oh which my is God. important. We are going to bore everybody to sleep. <laughs> It'll be fast. Okay. So um, according to the MPAA, which is the um, Motion Picture Association of America, um, in 2017, the U.S. and Canadian box office – generated about $11.1 billion in sales, uh, which was a decline of 2% from 2016. So the think about this from about 15 to obviously now theater sales is actually kind of decreased, which was in 2020, a lot of closures of movie theaters was 
kind of escalated by the pandemic, obviously, but it was kind of slowly happening anyway. There was a big market compression. Um, lots of um, that's why you see like AMC kind of buying more smaller places because they're going out of business. The big guys usually gobble up all the little guys. Um, listen to this globally, the box office hit $40.6 billion in 2017. So wow. the global market is about four times as big as the domestic market. When we talk about budgets, we always talk about reported budgets. Studios never come out and say, this is how much we spend on a movie. They would never do that because they never want to be held to a number, um, even though they are, because it's people always figure it out. Um, most of these companies are publicly traded. So you can kind of back into the math a little bit. Um, so when we say John Carter has a budget of X, that's the reported budget. So think about a movie that is, and we talk about this all the time, a $15 million movie, that's the production budget. We also talk about that it needs to be advertised. It needs to you know, print either in television, things like that. So this, are, this backs it up and says, hey, if you're a $15 million movie, Budget-wise, you're still spending another $15 million on budget or more. So if you're – Yeah, typically. And if you're like a romantic comedy or something that's not – does not have a built-in audience, you could see that number be like two and a half times budget of production budget because, you know, there's no built-in audience. They have to advertise more. Um, You know, obviously – some romantic comedy that costs $15 million isn't advertising on the Super Bowl for $5 million. But, you know, um, think about that in the grand scheme of when you see Fast and the Furious 27 advertised on the Super Bowl, remember, remember that a three-minute uh, trailer probably cost them $6 million or something like that. So, well, and, and those are tentpole movies. So when, when we do talk about budgets, so to your point – your, you get a normal release, which might be billboards, trailers, your typical marketing, posters, et cetera. Tentpole movies, which are things like Fast and the Furious, where you know they're spending north of $150 million. Tentpole movies come with tentpole marketing. So they're hitting everything just across the board. So they spend yeah. a lot of money on films like, you know, just Star Wars, Avengers, any of the franchises that are considered summer tentpole films are going to come in with a ridiculous amount of money spent on budgets. Okay. And another important factor to when we talk about budgets is incentives um, or product placements, which ha- kind of help give in a budget, kind of a built-in cushion. So um, states like Louisiana, um, I know Georgia has one, which has kind of made it a little bit more controversial now, that if you shoot um, on location in Georgia or Louisiana – they will give you a tax incentive for shooting there, um, typically because you're employing people in the state and it's generating revenue that way. Um, so that's another way to kind of be a little bit more risk averse is you're you're going to go shoot where you get an incentive. You know, maybe you're like in the case of John Carter, you're going to go shoot in London, but we'll get there later. Um, so, A, the number one revenue generator for movies is movie theaters. Um, typically that split is about 50, 50, but studio to uh, theater chain, but there's a thing called risk sharing. So what that is, is if a film is seemed is deemed that it might flop or be a little bit more on the riskier side, 
the studio will incentivize the chain theater to show it by giving them more of the revenue slice. Um, Because if you think about it, there is a finite number of theaters and a finite number of screens. You can show the Avengers in-game in all of those theaters, or you can show it in, you know, if you have 12 theaters, you know, you're probably shooting first weekend, maybe three to four. What are those other eight showing? And typically during the summer, you know, there might be 25 movies that you can pick from. So if you can maybe have a little bit more risk aversion in some of those movies that you pick, maybe you pick those. Um, so that's kind of how that, that works. Um, typically a studio makes like 60% of their revenue domestically and somewhere between 20 and 40% internationally. Now, if you look at things like sci-fi action, things that are special effects heavy, where the dialogue really doesn't matter. Um, there's a chance that international market is bigger than domestic. Um, that's why you see transformers in the market so much is because they do so well. Uh, I guess in China, isn't China oh, yeah. the big market? China yeah, loves so. its robots. Yeah, exactly. Another way, obviously merchandising the star Wars effect. So, um, I looked up 2015, just merchandising alone for the force awakens. Take a guess. Just merchandising, just merchandising. I have no idea. I, I couldn't even 700 and 700 million dollars just in merchandising, just in merchandising. That's ridiculous. Yes. It makes total sense because you have not just kids buying it, but you have 40-year-olds who grew up on Star Wars yes, exactly. walking into the Target and going, well, that's a kind of a cool action figure. I should take that to work with me. So, yeah, I totally, I totally understand that. Yeah, yeah. And they said that actually Toy Story has made billions in merchandising. Well, I think, I think Cars is a great example where the film was very successful, but the reason why we have so many Cars sequels is simply because it was the number one – uh, yes. toy product or merchandising product for Disney at that time. Yeah. I've, I've, I've generated a lot of revenue for Disney <laughs> through cars. Um, so you have obviously ticket sales, merchandising foreign market sales, which is relative, you know, kind of the same thing, but there are things like pre-selling your, your movie. Um, what movie did we do that pre-sold? I don't remember. We've, we've talked about it. it it's yeah. usually on an international market. And there are stories, especially, you know, from Canon and, and some of these infamous studios who would go out on the market, have a great poster, have a star attached, not a thing filmed, or maybe they would have some concept art or something. And all of a sudden get the movie paid for even before they shot the thing. So yep. that's not uncommon. And that is one of the reasons why you see... Tom Cruise, like big name actors in movies that are huge globally is he translates. So yes. he is going to make your film, you know, like we said, you know, there's a chance you, if you're, if you make $300 million domestically, which is a huge ending, you might make another three to four internationally with someone like Tom Cruise um, at your helm. And then obviously the last part is, Television rights, streaming, VOD. Um, like we said, you know, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K is declined, but things like streaming and um, even things like renting a, a, a film on a plane, like they have to buy those rights. So that's all you know, generating revenue for 
for these studios. Um, but to kind of harpen back to the, th- the, the main point is I think it's somewhere between for typical movies, it's like 70% of their revenue is generated from ticket sales. Right. So they have to get, you know, star Wars isn't everything. Most studios don't have a star Wars. So they have to get their revenue recouped as early as possible. And that's another thing you are investing in this film. If it takes a theatrical run, then streaming DVD sales, merchandising for you to get back that money. That is a long tail. Yes. And that is for studios that don't have the treasure chest that Disney has. That could be very risky because that is money that you could be spending on, you know, green lighting other projects. Um, so, you know, the longer it takes to recoup money, it's just, it, it is more risky because, you're not getting it at the front end. Um, the back end stuff is always the more scarier part. So, um, and these, yeah. these budgets, the other thing to keep in mind is when a, a movie, you know, sort of green lights something and you talk about development, pre-production shooting, et cetera. Some of these big tentpole films, they may be two, three, four years in development and then have a hundred days of shooting. And then you've got, you know, um, post development. So, years go into making a lot of these films and and that's a lot of money and so as soon as it hits to your point they have a small window to get that money back and then you know they've got other i guess sources to continue that money coming through but it it's an odd business model because it's really spending money i mean if you think about it you're spending money for three or four years and then you get what six weeks to get you know as much back as possible and then everything that comes after, you know, after that should be icing on the cake if you had a good, you know, successful theatrical run. And you have some movies, um, and we'll talk about these from, you know, James Cameron, like Titanic or or Avatar. Those were fantastic for the movie theaters because if something is a huge hit, uh, I don't think everybody, you know, I remembers how significant Avatar was. And we've talked about this. When a film comes out, you're typically seeing, you know, a 50% drop off in ticket sales for the next week. Um, Avatar was one of those, as soon as it came out, it maybe had a 1% drop off or, yeah. or it was flat. And studios will typically on the, if a ticket is $10, studios might get seven to $6 of that in the first week. So their percentage is very higher. Now, as the movie plays and you get into week four, five, and six, their percentage drops and the movie theater percentage increases. So a movie theater, a, a chain really likes films that have legs on it because if a lot of people are still going to see a very popular movie four or five weeks down the road, that's just more money for the movie theater. So whereas in the first week, your studio is making its money on those ticket sales. The theater is making it off of concessions. It's getting its money theatrically from the stuff that's been out three or four weeks. Yeah. And that's all kind of a typical run. It ends up being like 50, 50, but you know, it, like you said, studio is way at the beginning. That's yeah, why they're heavy in the beginning you do see the huge marketing push. Um, it, it's kind of fascinating. Like, and one of the things I never thought about is I was reading an article about John Carter. You know, they would say, oh, they accounted for $140 million for this movie in 2010. And that was the, you know, the biggest year for this movie. And I thought about it. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you would account for the expenses in the year that you incurred those expenses and not just all, all on, you know, 
2012 when it comes out. So it's funny that, you know, it, they were like, you know, they employed 415 people and, you know, you accounted for that in 2010. So that was the biggest cost for this movie was 2010 or whatever. And that was, it just kind of like reiterated the fact that, Oh, you just don't account for a movie when it comes out. Like it's a, like you said, a three to four year process or more. Um, and you account that way for it as it goes, you know, maybe in 2009 when it's in pre-production, maybe they only accounted for 25 because, you know, you're got your script writers and you're getting your director on board and things like that casting. But, you know, then everything else is kind of, so it's, that was kind of a fascinating reminder of how, of how that works. Yeah. And the, and the reason why we're talking about it. So John Carter, as Brad said, it's, it's an, it's infamous. It's infamous because it was a huge box office disaster for Disney at the time. This is going to be an interesting little tale. We'll spend a lot of time leading up to the development and all the things behind the scenes because, as Brad pointed out, it, it's, it's very interesting how art and commerce come together, especially on a film of this size. And one of the things that I find interesting is when when you do a deep dive and, and you spend a week and you're reading about a film and you're watching the special features and then you finally go watch the film, sometimes it's hard to divorce yourself from everything you know about the film and sitting down for two hours and just trying to enjoy it. So that'll be an interesting conversation later on. Yeah. But we thought it was a really good, I don't know, primer for the discussion because it is very important for you to understand if you want to get the most bang out of your buck for what we're going to talk about tonight, you kind of have to understand what the studio is looking at when they greenlight these these films and how it works and where they are going to get their money. And what Brad just talked about is what your typical film should do. John Carter, uh, some would say... <laughs> did none of that. <laughs> so we're going to get into that. But before we do, I do want to talk about um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. So I don't know how familiar you are with Edgar Rice Burroughs, Brad. To be honest, I'm not. He is not someone that I ever really heard of until this movie, to be honest with you. Okay. So the, the only thing that I've ever associated <clears throat> with him was specifically Tarzan. So he's the creator of that. John Carter uh, of Mars. To, to that be, makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> to be to be quite honest, John Carter, I had always associated with as a Disney product and knew that I think there was a, a couple of comic book series, et cetera, but I didn't know um, too much about this particular character or the history of it. Our, our good friend, Sammy, from The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, he knew that we were doing this film and he recommended a book to both of us and it's called John Carter and the gods of Hollywood. It was written by Michael D. Sellers. Now, Sammy says, hey, it's like a 400 book, 400 page book. You can get through it in like a day or two. I got through half of it. I apparently am not the speed reader he is, but uh, I will finish it. I It did give a lot of good information, but I, I do want to start with one thing because it did a really good job of summarizing the importance of Edgar Wright's Burroughs and specifically this particular property. So in 1912, struggling businessman Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote A Princess of Mars, the tale of John Carter, a Virginia cavalryman mysteriously transported to Mars, where he would find adventure and meaning in life alongside Deja Thoris, the incomparable Princess of Helium. The story would lead to an 11-book series and become the cornerstone of modern science fiction. Burroughs went on to write Tarzan of the Apes, and at the time of his death in 1950, 
was the best-selling author of the 20th century, with his books translated into 58 languages and outselling his contemporaries Hemingway, Faulkner, and Fitzgerald combined. That blows my mind. Wow. Yeah. His creation, Tarzan, was then and remains today the single most globally recognized literary character ever created. Gradually, a long list emerged of scientists and storytellers, politicians, and spiritual leaders, all of whom have said that it was Burroughs who had caught their imagination and inspired them in their youth. Among them, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Carl Sagan, Ronald Reagan, Jane Goodall, Billy Graham, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and James Cameron. So that should just give you just a taste of how influential this author was. And again, Hollywood gravitated to the Tarzan tales. And if you go back and look at how many Tarzan films were made, especially in the early days of Hollywood, it, they, there were so many of them. And we're still making them now. Yeah. And between the comics and the books, and you talk about the Tarzan merchandising, et cetera, John Carter was just something that never got off the ground. However, those 11 books inspired so many people. And we're going to talk about that in detail because when you talk about the story of John Carter and how many people tried to get that thing off the ground, it's absolutely fascinating. But before we do anything and we get into the development, we typically like to start with the numbers because we, we you and I, Brad, kind of work in the in the finance business world, right? Yep. yep. So you did a great job in, in sort of kind of talking about the income streams and everything else. But let's talk about John Carter specifically in the budget. So yeah, go first, for it. yeah, gross profit versus net profit. We need to because there's some incentive advising some incentives going on in this movie that kind of make those two numbers different. Okay. Okay. Your gross profit is the difference in value between the revenue generated by a product or service and the cost of producing it. The cost of producing it, uh, usually known as uh, cost of sales or direct costs. I I'm sorry, uh, listeners, we should have put yeah. a economics 101. I know. I don't know. <laughs> I know. You're like, if anyone out there has a good CPE like I do, you could probably get an hour for this one. Um, okay. And generally includes things as materials, distribution costs, labor costs. So basically gross profit represents the amount of value gained from the sale or product. Gross product does not account for uh, other costs such as operating expenses, or other overheads, taxations, interest, and payroll. Because your growth profit doesn't take these into account, it's important to remember that they represent your actual or real profit. Okay. Essentially, net profit is the gross product minus all costs occurred in order to make that profit. When producing a profit and loss statement, net profit can uh, be shown as a figure before, it can be shown as a before or after tax number. And it can be, you can have a gross profit that is positive, but a net profit that is negative. Okay. Okay. So we talk about budget with this movie. I'm going to give you two numbers. The budget, the gross, so before taxes essentially, was $306 million. $306 million. But they filmed... This movie in London, well, outside of London. Okay. They got a, about a $40 million, $43 million tax incentive for doing so. 
So essentially what that did is that is just money that they could use because it was basically given to them to operate in this area. So that brings the budget down to about $263 million, but still $263 million to make John Carter. And and most trades will call it at 250. I think 250 was the number that floated around, especially when this film got released and the budget became, I don't know, the center of attention from a lot of media perspective. You will hear John Carter typically had a $250 million budget. And again, that's just basically saying, hey, that's what we're spending after we got some incentives to go film in a particular place. Yep. Domestically, it makes $73 million. Wow. It, internationally, it makes $211 million for $284 million total. Again, here's where we get into some weird numbers. We just said that the budget will say $250. You're going to say, oh, it made $43 million or $34 million. Yes, against its production budget, but... It also costs a lot of money, a lot of money to advertise this movie. Well, stop there. We'll get into that in a minute. So well, it, yes. it had an advertising budget, but we'll talk about that shortly. But it's still, they wrote off, I think somewhere I saw, they wrote off about $85 million for this movie. It, it was um, a $200 million a, write-off is what they ended okay. up doing. That hit the news. Okay. Um, Disney in the 10th week just publicly said, we're going to write off $200 million on John Carter. And that's 10 weeks after its release. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> Opening weekend, $30 million. Holy cow. $30 million. And it, it um, opened in March. So March of 2013. Okay. Um, I will tell you the films that came out in March of 2013, because you had a lot of choices. That's John a Carter big year for, might not have, franchises too yeah might not have been your first choice or your 10th choice okay uh you had the lorax the the dr seuss the lorax project x you had a thousand words you had the raven with john cusack <laughs> uh you had friends with kids iron sky remember iron sky yeah i do yeah yeah here's one that probably destroyed this movie the Hunger Games, same audience. Um, you have 21 Jump Street, probably the same audience. Mirror, Mirror, Red Dawn, The Tall Man, uh, The Raid Redemption, Wrath of the Titans, and Sinister. Remember Sinister was, wasn't that scientifically proven to be the scariest movie of all time? I, I think science had said that was the yeah. scariest film. Yes. So remember 30 million dollars 30 million dollars and what we were talking about is is you were saying oh and then 50 percent the next week literally it makes 30 million dollars this first weekend 55 percent drop off for the next weekend makes 13 and a half and that's essentially a gonna be most of your money right there's that first two weekends uh because then you're looking at a 63 percent drop off and then it's literally out of, out of theaters by June of, uh, end of June. So if I remember correctly, it was up against the, it comes out, uh, within a window where yes. the Lorax is on one side of it and the hunger games is a week or two afterwards. After the Lorax, but, the Lorax yeah. beat this film, right? Yes, it did. What comes out April 
or May 4th of 2012. Do you remember? So 2012, that's the year of, of Marvel's The Avengers, right? The Avengers, exactly. Okay. So The Avengers, about roughly the same budget, makes $1.5 billion. So to be fair, Disney could write off $200 million of John Carter because well, they, it's, it's a Marvel Disney film. Yes. 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 So they have to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, and, so and it's fascinating it, to, it, to see that, you know, it has the hunger games like at the front end of it. And then at the back end of it is the Avengers kind of coming and, and waiting. And we have to remember when people plan on going to the theater and they know they're going in May, it might cost them to take the family. It might be a hundred to $150 to go to the theater. So if they know they're going in May, they might not go in April and they might not go in March. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it yeah. might just be that they're going to see a movie in May. So they're not going to see anything else for, for families. And I, I know this taking two kids yeah. out with the, I'm, it's an expensive trip. So yeah. that, and the other thing to put into perspective is Marvel and Disney come together. They put the Avengers out. The hunger games did not have the budget of John Carter or Marvel. I think it cost about anywhere from 60 to 80 million. It wasn't that much. And it totally blew John Carter out of the water. It was a very successful franchise. And obviously the hunger games has made a ton of money, but that's yeah, actually the, the hunger games cost 80 million. It made almost 700 million. So almost yeah. 10 times its budget. And, and that's, that's the type of movie the studios are looking for is something that has a pretty good budget, not huge, but has that type of return. And that's what you build franchises off of, which <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get into you just yet, but maybe they should have spent maybe eighty million dollars on John Carter. But, you know, <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, how did the um, how did the critics react when this thing came out? So we're looking at fifty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics, sixty percent with the audience. So they're close to in line. Um, here's the the critics' consensus: While John Carter looks terrific and delivers its share of pulpy thrills. It it also suffers from uneven pacing and occasionally incomprehensible plotting and characterizations. Ooh, that's tough. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, So we're, before we get into the development and talk about all the stories, let's talk about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera. Behind the camera is very interesting. No. So it is directed by Andrew Stanton. So are you an Andrew Stanton fan, Brad? I am. He is uh, one of the better Pixar directors. Okay. Yeah, he's, he is, you know, behind Lasseter at the time, he, he was kind of number two. And leading up to John Carter, he had made Disney and Pixar a ton of money. So in 1998, he co-directs A Bug's Life, but he acts as director on Finding Nemo in 2003. Huge hit for Disney. Yes. At that time, it was one of the highest um, grossing animated films of all time. But I think we should note, wasn't expected to be that big of a hit. Correct. It was, it was a, a surprise. Li- a surprise hit. Yes. Yes. Follows Nemo up. And again, if you look at the time of Nemo to his next film, you're, you're really talking five years because it took them, you know, a good four years to make it. But after finding Nemo works on WALL-E from 2008. And I know that is, is a pretty much beloved film. I will be the first to say I thought WALL-E was okay. I was not in love with it as much as everybody else. 
Um, Finding Nemo, I could probably quote from my daughter because we watch that, I don't know, four or five times every day. Um, and he's also done, you know, after John Carter, four years later, does Finding Dory, which is another big hit. So his track record with Pixar and Disney is really good because if you look at, a, you know, Bugs Life, Finding Nemo, Wally, Finding Dory, I mean, he's printing money for him. John Carter is the anomaly. John Carter is also the only one that is not a totally animated film. However, when we talk about it, it's pretty interesting. It has as much visual work going on within it as some of the films that he's done. So yes, but it's still considered a live action film. It is now this, he is also a contributor on the screenplay. So Andrew Stanton did that, but he did it with two other people, Mark Andrews and Michael Chabon. So Mark Andrews, he's worked on other Pixar films like brave from 2012. And to give you an idea of Michael's work, he actually was a writer and on uh, Spider-Man two from 2004. One of the best superhero movies, I think. Yeah, there you go. So the pedigree in terms of direction and screenplay is really up there. And I I think you've got some people that you can bank on that is going to give you a good story. And then historically, if you look at their work too, they're they're really good artists and and an excellent director. However, keep in mind that the actual director, Stanton, this is the first time he's going out and working in sort of a live action scenario. Everything he's done to that point for Pixar and Disney has been computer generated animation. Here's where it gets really interesting. So let's talk about the cast. Mm. <laughs> 2012 was the year of our lead actor, Mr. Taylor Kitsch, John Carter. So you might know him, and I've never seen this TV series, but I know a lot of people love Tim it. Tim Riggins. So Friday Night Lights from 2006 to 2011, I think that's where he got a lot of notoriety. He was also in X-Men Origins Wolverine from 2009 as Remy LeBeau. LeBeau? 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 I'm, I'm not as good with the uh, the X-Men universe. I, he's, gam- he's Gambit. He's Gambit. That's right. Yeah. But also, oh, more to me. Sorry, <laughs> no, that's that's great. <laughs> the, the the cartoon. My son and I've been watching that Saturday morning cartoon. It is just offensive. That the, the Gambit voice acting is so offensive. It is funny. Oh, I love it. I'm, I'm going to be asking for more Gambit impersonations okay. before we're done here. Um, so Taylor has a good year in 2012 in terms of putting his mug in front of everybody because he's also in another big blockbuster that didn't do so well, and that was Battleship in 2012. So he has Battleship come out and John Carter. To uh, be fair, yeah, most people, that would have been it for him. Yes. We would have never heard from them ever again. No, he's still uh, working. He's, I know, I yeah. know. So another one that has done a lot of TV, and she was also in X-Men well, Origins. Just to be fair, because yeah. we kind of crapped on his, yeah. um, he was in a... Uh, kind of a limited series called Waco and it was really good. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. It was, uh, he played David Koresh. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was really good. He's a so good actor. I really like is, him. He, he can be very good. Yes. And I will also say this. We may, we may visit battleship at some point. We will get to battleship. Yes. yes. So, uh, Lynn Collins. So she is the princess of Mars. And I hope I say this right because I was really trying to pay attention to the film, but is it uh, Deja Thoris? I think so. Okay. 
I really don't know where she's from. If you go look at her filmography outside of the X-Men origins that she was in with, with Taylor, she's done a ton of TV and she's a very prolific actress. And I thought she would, you would have loved her cause she like did karate, like her whole, she is a, martial, yes, she is yeah. a certified martial arts guru. She can kick butt. And we're going to talk about her when we get to our thoughts about the film. Uh, then we get, and I'm, I, I'm going to say the name and it's going to, your, your little catchphrase is going to come out here, but we got Willem Dafoe as Tars Tarkas. Oh, hey, Spider-Man. Yep. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to go back and mark every episode you've done that on to see how many times you did. So. Oh, hey, hey, Spider-Man. Uh, yes, we have Willem Dafoe. Listeners will know him from the classic 1984 Streets of Fire. Uh, but uh, obviously Spider-Man as the Green Goblin. We get Samantha Morton, um, Sola, another one I'm not too familiar with, but I do remember her from Minority Report uh, in 2002. So there's our Tom Cruise connection. Mark Strong as... Yes, this was a film in 2012, so Mark Strong had to be in it. He had to be in it um, as Mate Shang. You'll know Mark more recently from Shazam as the bad guy, but then also as Merlin from the Kingsman series. Uh, And then you get Dominic West, who... I, I love him in The Wire from yes. 2002 to 2008. Uh, he's in 300 in 2006, plays sort of bad guy in there. And then uh, Punisher plays another bad guy let's, in 2008. Let's not just blaze over The Wire. Like, if you haven't seen The Wire, please see The Wire. It's one of the best TV shows of all time. It's fantastic. And Troy's living The Wire now. He lives in Baltimore. I'm so, living you know. The Wire right now. <laughs> it's, it's fun to go into shops like my favorite store in Fells Point. Uh, Soundgarden. And someone says Omar coming and you have to like hide. Well, no, you, you look at Soundgarden and you see, uh, all the cast from the wire would stop in and, you know, get their vinyl or movies and stuff there. So there's, there's tons of, I mean, they sell all those pictures up, but yeah, I love the wire. I like Dominic West a lot from the wire, but I think it's funny that since that TV show, uh, you know, he, he got the gig, I think it's Punisher Warzone where he's playing, is it jigsaw or whatever that villain is. I think so. Yeah. So he, he's, he plays a lot of bad guy, bad guy parts, kind of like Mark Strong. But, you know, there's a lot of other people in the film. Those are the ones I sort of gravitate to that are more recognizable. So let's get into the development story. This is fascinating. So, okay, we kind of nerded out on you in the beginning, but not like pop culture nerd. We got like math nerdy on you, so apologize. This Sorry. is where the good, juicy, gossip Hollywood stuff is, so I hope you didn't give up on us yet. I mean, we were talking <laughs> numbers before, but now we're getting into the good, like, oh, Brad, did you hear that? Oh, my God, can you believe So we're getting into that stuff, okay? So let's talk about the development. So Disney had spent 14 years, so from 1986 to 2000, developing the film. They had seven writers who had produced five distinct drafts, okay? So this is way before this movie gets released in 2012. People attached to it, John McTiernan, the director of Die Hard, one of the best action films of all time, right? We also, and here we go, Tom Cruise, he is attached to it to play John Carter, and get this, this blows my mind. Man, those those 12-foot aliens would have looked real tall compared yes, to compared. Tom Cruise. Well, here's the other one that just blew my mind. So you're thinking Princess of Mars, who immediately comes to mind, that's right, pretty woman herself, Julia Roberts. So they were going to have okay. Tom Cruise and Julia Roberts star in John Carter from Mars, directed by John McTiernan. So that's what they were developing. So nothing comes about it. Everybody leaves. Rights revert back, kind of go back to the Burroughs estate, 2000. So all of a sudden, Paramount comes in. So Paramount secured the rights in 2002 
after going into a bidding war against Columbia Pictures. So they spent the most money up front just to get the rights to make the film. Paramount threw in the towel in 2006 and let the rights go back to the Burroughs estate. So they worked on it for four years and nothing came about. Do you know what we call that, Troy? What's that? Money well spent. Okay. Well, Literally, this, you buy something and just let it sit there. Well, this this is where it really gets juicy, right? So Paramount comes in and they go, okay, we got the rights to it. They start in 2002. And the first director they're looking at is Robert Rodriguez. Okay. So that's amazing. And you're like, Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi, Desperado. Yes. Spy Kids. Spy Kids. <laughs> exactly. So Robert Rodriguez is going to make John Carter of Mars. But something happens. So just before production, Robert gets into a battle with the director's guild over his decision to award co-director status to Frank Miller for Sin City. So if you remember that film, it was directed by Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. Now that kind of pissed everybody off because Frank Miller was not a part of the director's guild. And that's kind of a big no-no. So as a result, Rodriguez sort of gives the middle finger up to the director's guild and drops out. And because of that, Paramount's like, well, we have to use a director from the director's guild so Rodriguez can't be attached to John Carter anymore. So the next person they go to is Carrie Conran, and she directed, um, or he, I can't, is, is it he, she? I'm okay. not sure. That person directed Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow with Angelina Jolie, which it'll be another one we'll probably talk about. And, and here's something really cool. Carrie can't do it, so they go to John Favreau, who, little side bit here, John loves this property, and even though he didn't get to direct it, he's actually in the film, in the 2012 version, because he called up Andrew Stanton and said, hey, congrats, you're directing this, can I be in the film? So he ends up being a Thark bookie. So there you go. What's crazy about this is Andrew Stanton's a big John Carter fan. So he's following all of the trades and all the information going on about this film, right? So you think he was like wizard magazine, remember wizard magazine. Do you think this was like a big thing in wizard? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm obviously uh, everybody's talking about it because you know, he's working for Pixar, uh, doing his thing and working on Wally at the time. But you know, from 1986 to 2000, Disney had, it couldn't do anything with it. Then all of a sudden he's reading about Paramount getting it Four years. Nothing happens there. So he picks up the newspaper or wizard magazine or whatever he's reading and finds out that, Oh wow. Paramount couldn't make it. Everybody dropped off, right? John Favreau is not making it. So what ends up happening is Andrew Stanton is talking to his, uh, buddy, Dick cook, who's the chairman of Disney studios and says, Hey, these John Carter rights are available. Now keep in mind, Andrew Stanton just made a, just a ton of money for Disney um, with, uh, was it Finding Nemo? He's, he's working on the next big project. And, it, and at this point with his reputation, he was one of their star directors. So Dick Cook says, oh, well, you're working well, on- he, Wally, that Wally, he was coming off of Wally. Yeah, well, it, Wally was still two- Well, oh, okay. Wally was still two years from release. So he's in the middle of working Wally. Okay. And okay. he, he goes to Dick Cook and says, hey, those rights for John Carter are up. So maybe after I'm done with Wally, I'd, if that's still available, maybe I'll go make that. So Dick Cook gotcha. is okay. saying, okay, wait a second. One of our best directors and like the number two at Pixar is interested in it. So um, Finding Nemo, 
uh, at the time. Because again, Wally's not out yet. It was the highest grossing animated film ever. So Disney says, all right, we'll go ahead and acquire the rights to the first three books. Because you remember, there's 11 of them. So they go get those rights in 2006. Okay. Now, that's a huge, th- this property's always been a huge gamble for Disney, Paramount, and then Disney again. Because the thing you got to keep in mind is, the property did not have a large current fan base. There was a Marvel comic series in the 70s, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Um, the book, you know, 11 books are out there, but really there's there's no TV shows, there's no toy lines. Nobody really knows about John Carter as John Carter. Um, and John Carter as a property, to be quite honest, it already been stripped of all of its ideas. Yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> well, not even just Star Wars. So think about this. Superman was inspired by John Carter because it's an alien that comes to Earth and can leap tall buildings in a single um, bound. So yep. Superman is a direct, uh, I don't know what you would call it. John Carter inspired Superman. Look copy. Yeah. So another big series, and we've talked about this one too, Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon uh, borrowed heavily from all the John Carter books. Star Wars you just talked about. Um, And here's another big one that was released right before John Carter came out, but it was Avatar. Okay. So think about this. Avatar comes out in December, 2009, one month before John Carter started shooting, which is kind of crazy. But in essence, Everybody had already seen John Carter through all these different, you know, forms, but didn't know it. So John Carter was really not a huge property. But if you go back and you look at Star Wars, especially Return of the Jedi, they the the term Jedi sounds very similar to some of the characters that come from the John Carter books. I mean, Star Wars is really the perfect blend of John Carter with samurai films. And, um, you know, Flash Gordon did it, but Superman, Superman's the one that kind of messed with my head a little bit, because if you think about this thing coming out so early and then Superman hits, it makes total sense that they would read John Carter and go, yeah, we want to do that story and then have the guy come to earth and he can do all the things that John Carter can do and ends up being Superman. Yeah. Reverse it essentially. Yeah. So I want to go back to the budget for a second, because again, I found this kind of interesting. So in the 1990s, McTiernan's version of John Carter, they had estimated it was going to take $120 million to film McTiernan's version. In what year? In 1990. Because when they went back, so keep in mind, they take a script and they go through the script and they start sort of assigning a page to the script and going, what kind of effects are going on here? What is the cast doing? How many explosions are there? So every page of the script, they they basically take a bunch of accountants, right? People like you, Brad, that go through and say, oh, uh, if you're, if you're going to have these three things explode, that's going to cost you like $50,000 um, in fire extinguishers and then another $200,000 in, in C4. And, you know, they, they're just going through all that and they're line item. They're, they're kind of putting a line item to all of the action and the sequencing and everything that's happening on a script. That's what happens. So after they go through the script and they go, okay, how much is this going to cost to make? It's $120 million. So that would be, it's about double that now in today's money. Oh yeah, definitely. So, and again, keep in mind, John McTiernan, these are the years from 1986 to 2000. And so we're talking about 1990 and um, they're going, yeah, it's, it's about 120 million. So when they option for the rights the second time around, Disney comes back to it and Dick Cook is kind of looking at the property 
they don't have a script yet, but they're guessing. They're just saying, okay, when we looked at this last time, it was about 120 million. If we're looking at it this time and with computer effects and everything that's come along in the last, you know, 15 years or so, they're doing back of the envelope math and they're pegging it at 150 to 175 million. So this is an assumption. This is not taking the script and going through it. And you're going, dude, that's that's stupid. There's no fan base. Nobody knows about John Carter. I mean, everybody knows about exactly. John Carter, but they never, you know, it's not John Carter now. It's it's Luke Skywalker. It's Superman. But keep in mind, Disney at this time, Ratatouille. Do you remember? Do you know what the budget of that one is? That's a Pixar animated film. I was gonna say, I mean, I think it was. I think some somewhere I read like it was like two million dollars per minute. So you know, maybe $150 million. You're close. It, it came yeah. into about 120 million was Ratatouille okay. because again, Pixar's style of computer generated animation. I mean, it's, it's a three or four year process. It's very expensive. Wall-E cost 180 million. Okay. So that's, that's a big budget up in comparison. So you remember up, right? Old guy with the balloons was a $200 million budget. So I put those out there just to kind of show you that when you look at John Carter and you go, wait a second, that $250 million budget or 306 when they started, you know, pre-tax credits, that's crazy. But think about it for a minute. Um, the film envisioned by Stanton. So when they put that screenplay together, uh, let, let me intervene a little bit though. Okay. Pixar films do have like a built-in audience for Pixar movies. Yes. Like there is, there's a group of, well, there's a lot of people who will see a Pixar movie simply because it is a Pixar movie. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. So if, okay. You're, if you're thinking about Dick Cook and, and you go, Hey, I'm studio of Disney. I'm gonna go spend some money. And you're looking at what you spent on Wally and Stanton comes back and says, Hey, you know, Pixar director wants to do this. And they're going to have the resources of Pixar behind them too. So that's the other thing. They're going, okay, 175 million. That's that's about what we're spending on Wally. When they come to the budget after the screenplay is written, and Stanton says, "Hey, look, if we're going to do this the way I want to do it, you're going to spend about 250 million dollars." What Stanton envisioned included more animated shots than either Wally or Finding Nemo. Okay, and that's just animation. So that's how much animation went into John Carter. And although it was not released as the first Pixar live action film, it was largely produced as such. So Disney was using all Pixar resources on this thing in order to make it. And John Carter, this was in 3D as well, right? This was one it of was those. shot in 2D, but it did a 3D yes, post conversion. Yeah. Okay. And John Carter at a $250 million budget, uh, it had a 30% higher budget than Wally. It had more complicated production scenarios because of the blend of live action and animation. And again, um, what, what, I've, what I find just fascinating is if you read a lot of the stories that came out after this film was released and like, oh my gosh, 10 weeks after Disney's doing a $200 million, look at all reshoots, et cetera. Reshoots are always planned as part of a film. They, they know when they get into editing, if something's not right, they gotta go back. So they, most studios will plan for X amount of days of reshoots. And even though that budget was so big, the production itself adhered to the plan that was approved and it had 12 days of reshoots. So Stanton says we can make this film for $250 million or 300, you know, tax credits, whatever. And they came in right at budget, even with reshoots, which again is, is pretty crazy. Now, I, yeah. I got, 
like you said, though, like reshoots are usually built in. Yes. Um, but there's a certain period of time when, like, in actors contracts that say any unplanned or if I have to come back after after we've you know production has ended, you know, it's going to cost you way more money um, because that is they're on the hook for that and they can't work. So they are going to make you pay. So, but you're right. These are usually two weeks. I think is normally because you're not going to get everything right the first time. And when you're looking at the dailies, you're going to be like, Oh, that's because something we need to fix. Um, You know, this scene or this scene. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. Most of the time people hear reshoots and they think, Oh, they need to go back and fix it. They do, but it's always kind of planned. And Stanton was, uh, so what everybody was nervous about with Stanton directing is coming from Pixar. They will actually make a movie, look at it, then redo the movie, look at it, redo it again. So they end up making the movie almost four times in that four year period. They don't don't, like do the full, full like Pixar animation. It's very like rudimentary basically, but they end up making the film over and over again to get the story beats right, et cetera. So everybody was very worried that Stanton as a first time director, you can't do that with live action folks. Yes. Uh, Even though you have a lot of special effects and uh, you know, CGI going on in the background, but it is still amazing that he came in at budget. He got his shoots done and he got the the script and the vision that he wanted, but everybody's really worried about, Hey, is this guy going to recut the film and, and sort of work this product the way that they did with Wally or finding Nemo where they end up kind of shooting the movie four times over. So Stanton was very upfront said, I'm, I'm not going to get it right the first time. But if you look at the reshoots, it was only about 12 days. So they, they did really good on the production. So that, that's all the stuff that's happening with John Carter. Let's talk about the stuff that was happening at the studio that was going to end up affecting John Carter. This is where it gets really interesting. So keep in mind, Disney at this time period, they were going after, and they badly needed a boy franchise. So if you think about what Disney was doing about the time, 2006, 2009, when they're you know starting to ramp up on John Carter, they really didn't have a lot of, I don't know what you call it, boy properties, right? Or boy franchises. So just to give you an idea, Disney at the start of 2009, so this is about the time John Carter is wrapping up pre-production. They're getting ready to go into shooting, right? Um, Because they're going to start shooting in January 2010. This is the stuff that they're putting out first part of 2009. Confessions of a Shopaholic, Race to Witch Mountain, the Jonas Brothers 3D concert. So that, that was the Disney brand going out there. So what made John Carter attractive for Disney and Dick Cook, who was the studio chair at that point, was that it was an attractive boy franchise. It did, you know, it had a Disney princess in it for the most part. And, and so it, it would attract that clientele. But if you think about it, Disney had the Disney, you know, the princesses and, and sort of the, the, uh, the girl franchise wrapped up because even on their television stations, the Disney channel, they had Hannah Montana, That's So Raven, Lizzie McGuire. It, it had all these, what you might call girl franchises, but it was very light on the boy franchises. They had Tron Legacy in 2010. It was the second movie in that series. Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides was 2011. That was the fourth Pirates movie. But that was it. That was, that was really only the content delivered to the boys. Something happens, though. Yeah, something happens. August of 2009. 
Disney announced the acquisition of Marvel. If you're talking about chasing after a boy franchise, you struck gold with that one. For the price of $4 billion. Yeah, and here's where it gets really interesting. So the Dick Cook is the one who went out and got the rights. He was running Disney Studios. They acquire Marvel August 2009. In September 2009, Dick Cook is gone. He's out. Bob Iger told him his services were no longer leaded. So dog, Bob Iger is like the, the, big, the big cheese, right? CEO. Um, in October 2009, Rich Ross, head of global operations for the Disney Channel, took over as chairman of Disney Studios. Bob Iger tells Rich Ross, John Carter is more of a problem to be addressed than an opportunity to be realized because they just got Marvel. They got their biggest boy franchise ever, right? And so he's basically telling the new studio head, look, concentrate on Marvel and concentrate on Pixar. And on top of that, here's how we're going to release movies. Disney is family films, family-oriented movies. Pixar is your animation, and Marvel is your superheroes, and those are the three products we're putting out. And if it doesn't fit in one of these three categories, we're not interested in it. So you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, big shakeup. And, and if you haven't so listened... So PG-13 science fiction movie might not be what they're looking for at the time? No, no. And and if you if you think about it, Bob Iger, he as a business person was not really interested in a studio creating internal content. He was more of the guy who went out there and acquired content by buying other companies to bring it into Disney, right? So he was very instrumental in getting Marvel over with that big price tag. So you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, and if, and if you've listened to any other episodes, anytime you hear that the head of a studio is out the door, but a movie is coming out, that's not a good sign. That usually means a, a bomb is just right around the corner, right? So you're going, well, shooting's going to start in January 2010. Dick Cook's out the door. They just bought Marvel. Why, why are they going to let John Carter continue to shoot? Well, the principal cast is signed. All contracts are set. And even though it wasn't a Pixar project, so this wasn't going to be labeled as a Pixar movie, it was a passion project, or a lot of people refer to it as a Pixar baby. And because Andrew Stanton was supporting it and directing it, um, and he was sort of backed by Pixar chief John Lasseter, everybody's like, well, we can't touch this. It has to go forward. Here's the other- And they were afraid he was going to walk. Yes, they were. And here's the other interesting thing. So- in 2011, so a year before John Carter comes out, that summer of 2011, Bob Iger starts to have conversations with another person. Do you know who that is, Brad? I don't. George Lucas. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2011, they get together and they start talking. And here's the other thing that's kind of weird. So John Carter is going to come out in 2012. They start talking to the Star Wars franchise in 2011. And Remember, Igar believed in acquisition of content more than creating content. And so think about this. Would a successful John Carter franchise scare off George Lucas? Because George Lucas had already sort of rape and pillaged that property for all of his Star Wars ideas, right? Yes. So keep that in mind. Now we're getting into... Oh, I like Conspiracy Troy. Yes. So <laughs> this is where it gets really crazy. There's a test screening in June of 2011. So again... Iger and Lucas are off to the side having mimosas or whatever they do by the pool. I don't know. And they're talking about, hey, maybe Star Wars come over here. We get another big boy franchise. Look what we're doing with Marvel. You know, we're doing some cool stuff. 
and there's a big test screening. So you get to see Andrew's first vision of John Carter. Test screening actually scores really well with audiences. 75 to 80% scored it excellent or very good. That's fantastic for an initial test screening. And, it, and remember, it's not a finished product at that point. They still had unfinished visual effects. They had to kind of do some more editing. But that's great news. And so everybody's coming back to, to Disney and saying, hey, I think we got a hit on our hands. This thing tested really well. Well, Bob says, yeah, I don't think so. We're not going to treat, treat this as a tentpole movie, even though we spent $250 million. And again, they knew it was going to release the same year as the Avengers. So let's get into the marketing. This is where it gets really interesting. Even after a successful test screening, the studio, specifically Bob, decided John Carter would get the same marketing as a normal film release. So it, it got the same marketing as Jonas Brothers 3D, okay? Not Avengers, nothing like that. So it's a tentpole film, but it's not getting the tentpole marketing. So it's just going to get billboards, a poster, and a trailer. That's all they're going to do to it. Did you watch the trailer? The uh, Cashmere trailer? I did. Mm. Yeah. There's a there's a fan edit trailer that actually is really good. But um, what the marketing stuff did. And Stanton actually had a big say in a lot of the marketing. Nobody really pushed back to him. But they weren't going to give him a lot of resources either. Yeah, it was funny because someone reached out when I said that we were doing this movie on Twitter and they're like, hey, I, I, I remember seeing that movie, but I don't remember seeing any marketing. And it's kind of that reason is there really wasn't a ton. Yeah. And um, you have a temple movie. And one of the things that you talked about, Brad, was the merchandising, right? So like one of my favorite things growing up as a kid was going to Burger King and getting the Star Wars glasses. Do you do you remember those? No. <laughs> okay. It was, it was really cool. But you got the toys, you got the comic books. I mean, you got all this merchandising around a film called John Carter of Mars, right? Big science fiction thing. So you're going to have like cool science fiction toys. Well, no major push to obtain the merchandising, licensing, and co-promotion deals that would normally be associated with a temple film. Nothing. They go, yeah, you get a crazy. trailer, poster, that's crazy. it. Crazy. I mean, because you would think like, but again, but again, I said- this is a PG-13 movie. Like who, I mean, I don't know. They made a RoboCop cartoon, so maybe they'll, they'll do anything. But it's like, I don't know. The, the merchandising part of it is a little confusing because I know some of the Star Wars films are now PG-13, so my example is a little bit moot. But it, it seems like the audience of this movie is a little bit in flux. Um, so I don't know what they would have done with merchandising with toys and things like that. So it'd have been interesting to see, but of course that's a, what if now? Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. So they, they didn't do anything for this film and to give you an example. So the book, John Carter and the gods of Hollywood, I found this is interesting. This is really in the beginning to sort of tease you about how inf much information they're going into the release. So the author is looking at um, articles and publications. So if you think about it, even behind the scenes with social media, influencers, everything else, the studio is trying to release information, put stills out about a film years before it actually hits theaters and get everybody engaged in the film. Because you want to sort of plaster all your news sites and with stories and, oh, look at these people getting along and look how cool this movie is, et cetera. So he goes back and keep in mind, the movie's coming out in March of 2012, and he starts looking at, okay, what was going on in October as an example, and he's looking specifically at John Carter, 
the Hunger Games and the Avengers, right? So here's a chance back in October to kind of look at article output. Article output is basically your studio pushing articles about the film back in October to get everybody hyped about it and get your, you know, your influencers, social media, you know, your cinema blend, any cool news, all that stuff talking about your film. So here's what he found out in October. So Avengers gets 640 articles pushed out. I mean, that's huge, right? Wow. Yeah. Hunger Games, 224. So they're really pushing these articles out and really hyping up their film, you know, five or six months before it starts. I don't know the answer to this, but can I take a guess? Yeah. What do you think John Carter is? 25. Pretty close. Wow. 31. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So Disney has one franchise that they're putting out about 640 articles on. And then they have this other franchise that's internal that they just spent, you know, 250, $300 million on. And uh, they go, yeah, we're going to push about 31 articles out there. The amount of silence that went on from the marketing department is just ludicrous. They did not push this thing at all. And again, being the conspiracy theorist that I am, if you look what's going on behind the scenes and, you know, <laughs> if, if they're about ready to close the deal on Star Wars, maybe you don't want your John Carter to do well. Maybe you want that f- not to become a franchise because your next big boy franchise is about ready to come on board with Space Wizards. Love it. Yeah. And, and I love Tinfoil Hat Troy. <laughs> yes. And here's the other thing. I found this kind of. I like of, the alliteration better with that Tinfoil Hat Troy. So. Okay. I like that. Um, okay. Here's the, here's the other little piece of marketing that I thought was kind of funny. So in 2011, a year before John Carter comes out, Disney has a big film, big animated film come out called Mars Needs Moms. And it's a huge bomb for Disney. Yes, it is. Yeah. So this, we're not going to do that one on this one. Okay. Uh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I, I actually saw it in the theater uh, with the kids. But what you I, guys were the only people, I bet. We I think we were. <laughs> so... I find this little bit of information. Marketing looks at that and goes, oh my gosh, Mars is just not the new hotness right now. And they're looking at this property coming out called John Carter of Mars. Of Mars. And they're saying, okay, we got to drop that Mars stuff and just call it John Carter. So they have to go to the director because this is you know, his baby project and they sort of convince him. But as a result of Mars needs mom's tanking, they they pretty much convince everybody we got to drop the off Mar- the of Mars and and now it's just John Carter right and if you've seen the poster all you see is John Carter and some guy riding on what looks like a mutated elephant and that's your movie poster yeah Whew. they didn't bring up ghosts of Mars they didn't bring up ghosts of Mars no, like, they didn't, hey, they didn't no, try no, to go no. ghosts of Mars but that is all of the stuff leading oh up to the release of 2012's John Carter, not of Mars, but just John Carter. Uh, now, spoiler, when you, when you get to the end of the film and they show you the title, it becomes John Carter of Mars. So I think that's how they got Andrew Stanton on board. They said, well, you can't use it on the movie posters, but you can put it at the end of your film. Uh, is, that, is, that con- is that considered like a late title card? Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and and this, is a, this is a weird topic. I, I'm, I was so excited to to do some research on this because there are those little juicy bits. I mean, I like these films that have that type of Rocky history when, you know, a property is going back and forth to studios. And I mean, could you imagine a John Carter of Mars with Tom Cruise and uh, pretty woman herself running around 
in the desert sands of Mars, like saving everybody. Uh, you know, those are the films that I still want to see. I, I still want to see Julia Roberts and, and Tom Cruise like remake this film, start their own franchise. But Brad, now comes the question. We've talked about a bunch of nerdy finances. We've given, I think, the production history, all the ups and downs about how this thing finally got released into the wild. So now it's time to kind of share our thoughts on this film. And full disclosure, <laughs> between all the books and, I don't know, articles I read and videos I watched, et cetera, this one for me was really tough to separate the stuff behind the scenes versus watching it. So I had to intentionally kind of give myself some space before I sat down to watch it. So, but I'm, I'm really curious. This is your pick. Yeah, it is my pick. Yeah. Well, I, and the reason I picked it is like, it is a fascinating look at Hollywood and what goes wrong. Like as someone who helps evaluate risk and like deciding what your risk tolerance is like Disney's risk tolerance is immeasurable. They have, almost unlimited amount of money. So greenlighting a $250 million movie to most studios is one of the most risky things they can do for Disney. It's not they can, And they've done it a few times. I mean, Lone yes. Ranger is another yes. one that comes up that they, they like you said, mom, mom's needs Mars moms from Mars or whatever that movie yeah. is. That's a $150, $150 million movie as well. So, you know, they're, they don't, really care. I mean, they do care. They don't, no one wants to lose money, but they have all these safe franchises that are always going to make money. They're billion dollar franchises. Yeah. And it, when you have, when you have star Wars and you have Marvel, you you print money. So like, I don't even know what their risk tolerance would be. Like it's, it's well, they, they have a risk tolerance. What, what you have to keep in mind, any studio and Spielberg is resources about, and time at that point in time. It is, but Spielberg has even talked about this at some point, the studio system can fail. I mean, just look at Fox. Fox is a great example. Disney, you know, came in and bought them. They're getting ready to buy MGM. So a studio cannot consistently do $250 million films that fail. It, it only takes a handful. And the next thing you know, your studio is bankrupt and it's up for sale. Disney, luckily to your point, you know, say what you will about Bob Iger. He's, he is very shrewd and he understands, Hey, look, Disney's great on these type of franchises, but our demographic, we're missing the boys, right? So he yeah. goes out and probably grabs the, the two properties that is going to bring in all the boys, which is Marvel comics, as well as star Wars. So that's, that's very smart. And to your point, they can print money with those franchises. They, they are still looking at it. They have a risk aversion because even for Disney and especially, you know, post pandemic, they have a string of John Carter's or Lone Rangers or Mars needs women. They will. Mars needs women. Yeah. I think it's Mars, Mars needs, needs moms. women. Uh, Mars needs moms, whatever. It, it will, won't take too many of those before Disney kind of goes back and goes, well, you know what? We, we got to go do cars eight or finding Nemo and Dory. I, I don't know. So that's why we have you're sequels. Right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, so my thoughts on the film. Yeah. I'm curious, like how, how you enjoyed it, what you think of oh. it. And, oh. and mind uh, you, you gave 47 Ronin a pass. So I, I'm going to hold that. Over I, know, too. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I, full disclosure. I usually Friday night, Thursday or Friday night will 
put in the movie, watch it from start to finish. Uh, the first hour of John Carter goes by and I fall asleep. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, uh oh, that's not good. So then I, Saturday night, I turn it on and I'm watching the first hour and I'm still like, I don't know what is going on. I've seen this twice in two days and I don't know what is going on. I don't know the story. Uh, it's weird that the guy is from Virginia and he's from the civil war and he was for the South, which is like kind of weird, but you know, turns out that like maybe he has a character turn because he learned some stuff about, I, I don't know, some people of color. It's, it's weird. Like there's this weird, like people of color thing with him in the South. And I was like, it's like, is that just in the film or is that a part of John Carter? Like he's from the South, but he learns to tolerate people of color. Like, is that a uh, thing? John, John Carter's problematic. Yes. Okay. Um, I will tell you that I think Buckaroo Banzai's plot is more straightforward than this movie's plot. <laughs> oh my goodness. Really? This thing is an absolute mess. Like I was thinking today, what is this movie about? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Are the guys in red good? Are the guys in blue good? Are the tall aliens? Are they the good guys? Like, I don't know anything that is going on in this movie. And then the end comes and it's like the twist that like he's back on earth and he never found the amulet. And there's the little kid that he was writing to at the beginning. I literally completely forgot about that whole part of the, like the first 10 minutes of the movie. I'm like, Oh yeah, there was that part where he's that weird kid is reading his diary. I'm like, I don't know, man. It is, uh, kind of a slog. I had seen this before and we had mentioned it on the show before. And I was like, Oh yeah, John Carter. I, I like that movie. No, I do not. I do not <laughs> like this movie at all. Oh my it goodness. Is, uh, it is two hours and 10 minutes that will give you a really nice nap. Like it, the performances are, well, we'll get into it, but I, dude, there's nothing in this movie that I think is well done. Wow. No, oh, thank God. I feel like we're back to normal now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the last few episodes felt like what's wrong with you, Troy. You just, you're not. And then you're usually super critical and, we did 47 run and I, I thought we, we, I don't know, transplanted brains or something. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, dude. Um, oh, I, I, I'm so glad. I don't know why. Like, I, does that sound weird? I'm, I'm kind of happy. You're like, Ooh, I really didn't enjoy this one. Now I, I feel like I'm, my compass is pointing to okay. north again. Uh, this is not a Brad, this is not a Brad movie. So you, yeah. Um, I did. Well, I thought I did. After I watched it, I'm like, ooh, we're 47 Ronin threw me off. I really know what's going on. It's a samurai movie, dude. I'm going to give it a pass. Okay. So this, to me, uh, I, full disclosure, I watched it today. So I've spent all week reading about it. And it, finally, Saturday came around. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going to talk about this on a Sunday night. I haven't even watched the film yet. And the last time I saw the film was in the theater in 3D with my son. We had a blast with it. So... I am usually and and Cameron, I, I told him, I was like, Hey, I'm going to watch this. He's like, Oh, cool. Wake me up in the morning and I want to watch it with you. I'm like, okay. So I get up eight o'clock. Hey, Cam. He's like, Nope, going back to bed. All right. Well, I'm watching it by myself. So Teenager. You, yeah. Usually 
those kind of experiences, I'm thinking, well, I probably loved it because it was just the experience of going to um, a film with Cameron and experiencing that through his eyes and, and how much he loved it. And it's infectious to me. So I sit down and watch this and I go, okay, well, I don't have that. And I've read all the stuff about it. So I'm probably not going to have a, a good time with it. But I got to tell you, it's, it's a glossier version of Stargate, um, but it's not as breathtaking as Avatar. So don't bring up, don't, don't bring up Stargate. Uh, well, but I can't help it. So Kurt Russell in this movie, sir. Yeah. But listen, hear okay. me out. Everything about John Carter, I, until I kind of read about it and then you go back and watch it. Oh my gosh. You're, you look at flash Gordon, Superman, Stargate, Avatar, Star Wars. Oh my God. It, it's all been done before. There is nothing that John Carter as a property or story comes to the table and is new or refreshing. There's no new take on it. This is through and through. It it feels like a copy of all those films, but historically it's the first one. It inspired all those things, right? And I'm with you that the movie has some storytelling problems. Um, pacing and structure feels off. So I, I do want to start with the intro. The intro throws me off because I don't know when it takes place. I'm not I'm not sure how time works in this universe because the movie starts with Dominic Purcell, sort of the bad guy, trying to take over another ship. And then Mark Strong comes and goes, here's a blue thing. And then your blue thing can make you like shoot things better. And you get this whole Mars pirate sequence, right? And, it, and it's kind of impressive. I, I actually... It's... <sighs> It's not, it lasts like it doesn't last very long. Like the action in this movie, and I don't want to be unfair, but like they spend a lot of money on this movie. So, like, think about the ending of Return of the Jedi. Right. You have ground, you have lightsaber, you have in air all going on at the same time. But that's at is, the end. Yes. I, what I'm, yes. Yeah. But it's all epic and it like it's got stakes and all this stuff. Even with the, in battle in this one, like it's real short and it doesn't feel weighty and it's over and it, it just nothing about this movie is epic like it should be. I sort of agree with you. Not a hundred percent. But I I want to I want to I, I kind of want to walk through this in three acts, right? So okay. you got the first act in the intro that's thrown me off because I don't you get a Mars sequence. I'm not quite sure when it takes place because then you get jettisoned back to earth. Yeah. I had in my notes that like you have to start on Mars cause you can't, you can't have the audience wait to go to the cool place. Yeah. It, 25 minutes into the movie. Like you, you gotta, it could have, that could, that scene could have been better and kicked off this movie in a way cooler way, but they kind of failed. I, there, there are things I like. It's, it's your introduction of the sort of space pirate ship things, which I like. I like, I like the design. We'll talk about that. Um, there's impressive explosions. People are getting thrown around, and it's practical explosions, which I like. I don't know what's going on. Um, Baldy Mark Strong with his blue. Yeah, that blue thing looks like they made it from Michael's craft store or something, and he had to put it on his hand. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. But then you're back on Earth when John Carter and He's running around, but then he's dead. Then we have a flashback sequence where Edgar is reading a diary. And so then you get to John Carter looking for gold. So you've, you've got these three different time shifts going on. And I'm, I have no idea when the Mars things takes place in relation to 
when John Carter dies or when um, Burroughs is, is reading the diary of John Carter. So I, I don't know what 10 years is, five years. I, I don't know what the time shift is. It's confusing. That's the intro. But you get into the first act of the film, and here here's the stuff I liked. Um, I liked Edgar Rice Burroughs as a, as a character in the story, and that kind of lines up to how the novels were written as well. So I, I thought that was a pretty cool callback. So he wrote himself into the into the novels? Yes. So okay. they write him into the film. I thought that was kind of cool. I enjoy John Carter butting heads literally – with the union and Colonel Powell. So I like that sequence in the first part, you get a space pug in the first act. You, you get a space pug that runs really fast. I, I like space pugs. The best action sequence of the entire film is in the first act. And it's when Deja Thoris is escaping and John Carter is saving her. And you get this really cool battle with him jumping from ship to ship. Things are blowing up. Uh, the the Green Martian guys are at the bottom shooting at it. Big explosions. And I had high hopes for the action that was going to come for the rest of the film. Um, and the introduction of the Tharks, you know, leading up to that with all the babies and, you know, just the Thark culture. I, I love the design of the Tharks. I think it's a fantastic creature. Um, I think... The Tharks are the most interesting groups within the film. You're still trying to figure out what's going on and what is a Thern. I'm not exactly sure about that one. And you got two cities battling some internal conflict on Barsoom. So you got one city, Helium, and another, can't remember what the other city is. I, I'm sure it's in my notes. But you, you have this world, and you got one culture battling another culture. Some might call it a civil war. A civil war, yes. Um, and you've got one side that's trying to unify the planet, and the other side is trying to survive or, or kind of buck the unification. So this is where John Carter's probably pretty problematic because if you take a step back and go, wait a second, John Carter is a ex-Civil War officer who doesn't want to go and fight Apaches for now the the union, right? Because, you know, he, he comes from Virginia. So the South lost. So he goes to another planet and there's another civil war and there's one side that's wanting to unify everything and another side who doesn't want to do it. So he goes to fight for the side that doesn't want unification and they end up winning. So if you take a step back and you go, wait a second, John Carter really feels like fan fiction for the civil war of like what should have happened. Kind of. Yes. It's that, that inherently is a bit problematic. So if, if anybody were to throw some shade or criticism at John Carter or I don't know this film for those plot details, I would go, okay, it, you gotta, you gotta think about this. This is, you know, written at the beginning of the 1900s way, way back when, right. You're, you're allowed to update some things, though. I know. Um, I just thought it was interesting that they didn't update that aspect of it. Yeah. And, and like, is there a, like, are, because, like, there's that interaction he has with the Apaches at, when he's on Earth yes. at the beginning. And, of course, the aliens are the natives to the planet, I'm assuming. So there's that whole connection. Well, and, you're and, like, and he's talking with the Apaches and was trying to, I don't know, broker a deal between, broker. But, but one of the soldiers shoots the Apache. So all of yes, a sudden he's on the yeah. run. 
Yeah. Um, and let's call this what it is. This is another white guy saves the world movie. The white guy is the greatest thing these people have ever seen. So two things you're dealing with a property. I mean, again, it's 1912 is when the John Carter property hits the scene. The other thing is you're dealing with Hollywood in 2012. So absolutely. We're not woke yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, we're not in a post, uh, black Panther world. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. We're, we're not in that. Okay. I, I have to, even myself in, in my brain have to take a step back and go, you have to consider the source material. I'm not saying that Edgar Rice Burroughs was a champion of the South. He was racist, although he probably was given the time. (laughs) I don't know. I can't, I can't support that statement because I haven't researched it. I can't look at Disney and go, oh, I think Disney was pro-slavery because they made a John Carter's movie. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. I think you have a lot of artists who take a step back and say, well, I I grew up on, I mean, Stanton was clear. He grew up on the Marvel comics and not the books of the 70s. And everybody, you know, from all of these amazing artists and science fiction writers were influenced by this material in some way. And they beg, borrowed, and stealed from the John Carter universe to make Star Wars, Avatar, everything else. So I don't discredit any of that, but I gotta say John Carter just makes me feel a little funky when you look at, to your point, it's white guy goes and saves everybody. Um, Then you take a step back and you go, wait a minute, there's a civil war and they're fighting unification, What, what, huh? And I don't think the general moving going audience is going to pick up on that, but it's there. It's clearly there. Like, <laughs> like the, the, they have him open the film, like in his Confederate garb and like it, Brian Cranston's in this movie for three minutes. And it's great. Uh, Brian yeah. Cranston's in this movie, by the way, like, yes. as, as Pat. Yep. Yeah. Breaking bad. Like I feel bad. Cause it's like Brian Cranston, is in some of these movies I like and you know, in, in this movie and like that uh, Godzilla movie. And then like, he's gone. I'm like, Oh man, I want to see the crane man. But yeah. anyway, but I, I, um, I like the first act of this film. I, I love oh, the mystery. I, I, ooh, ooh, oh, ooh. no, I do. I, I like the mystery. I like the introduction of the Tharks. I, I hate everything on earth. I, I, I don't, I thought it was, oh. I thought it was interesting. I, I, I really enjoyed a little bit of the mystery of him finding the spider cave, how he gets transported back. I like the start of the world building that occurs in the first act. I love the action sequence in the first act. I, I actually thought it was pretty I just thrilling. feel like the, the aliens are the most interesting creatures in this movie. And you literally know nothing about them. Um, uh, besides they looks, there's like, Willem Dafoe and the other one are kind of butting heads and Thomas Hayden church. Yeah. Yeah. But but even how they do that, there, there are these little, I don't know what you would call scene. I mean, not even really scenes, but there's these nuances when they fight, they've got these horns and they lock horns just like Rams do. So I like the Thark culture. I, I, I like the fact that they find John Carter on their way to go get their hatchlings or whatever. 
and they're talking about, hey, there's five that didn't come out. And they're like, well, you got to shoot them or do whatever so that they don't become food for something else. So if you pay close attention, there's a lot of kind of cool world building, I don't know, nuggets that are going throughout the scenes, but they're usually in the background. They're not so much in the foreground. And I like that. I, I like the first act of this film. Now, when you get to the second act, I think this is where it becomes a bit of a problem because the middle section for me is come to the dark side, Troy. It, it's where it drags, right? So I get it. Clearly, Stanton is world building, especially at the second act. But the problem is he's in a desert. Okay. Now, the desert isn't as cool as Helium or Zodanga, I think, is the city. So one of those ones is like a world eating, like like is always moving. Is that's, that that's Zodanga. Okay. Hel- okay. Helium's like the the big so city a, where the it's princess a mortal, is from. It's a mortal engine. I right. got it. Yep. Yeah. So you get Zadanga, right? And you get the Thark settlement. So those, those are your three groups. And then you have these um, Therns, Tharns, whatever whatever you call them, right? The the bald guys. Bald so guys the, are watching over it. Like the godlike people, I yes. guess, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and you get to that middle section and you basically get a Thark, a really cool Martian. I, I love the design of the Thark. You get a space pug, which is awesome. And you get John Carter and Dejah Thoris going through the desert. So the desert's not really cool to look at. The Martian's cool. The space pug's clearly awesome. Um, (laughs) I will say, and you and I will disagree on this, I know. I think um, Dejah and John actually have good chemistry. We'll talk about the the performances. But really, the the problem with the middle section is the only thing visually interesting on the screen is the green Martian and the space pug. That's the only cool thing to look at in the, in yeah. the middle part of the film. Even when they get to that, would you consider like the tree thing like in the second act? Yes, that's... Yeah. Well, it's that thing that was in Avatar, the big tree, but the Avatar yeah. had all the colors and stuff like that. And this is just like a brown, a brown tree. Yeah. It, the, the second act, the only reason there is a second act of this movie is so they can exposit all the plot that is going the, on in this movie. And it's a bit of world building. So, But they mostly talk about they it. They mostly talk about it, right? Then you get to the third act, and, okay, you get two big, giant space monkeys. So I'm, I'm in on that part. Uh, and... <laughs> what's funny is this you get like a attack of the clones esque sort of arena battle yes any ray harry house i mean it's it's fun yeah. you get two space monkeys john carter's got to take them out and side note um the high ground did not help the evil thark because john carter just jumped up and took that guy's heads off so i think anakin should have paid attention to john carter in the big battle at the wedding you're absolutely right it it's over way too quick it doesn't really feel like there's a ton of anything on the line outside of if they don't go and save the princess, then Mars is doomed is pretty much what you get out of it. Yeah, I guess maybe, (laughs) but she marries the guy. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like my problem with this movie is, and I hate to take, cause I, I like the, the people in it. Right. But in this movie, I feel like, I don't know what John Carter's motivation is at the end. It is probably a girl, which is fine, but I don't really feel their chemistry 
I don't know. The only time I felt like the movie wasn't predictable, and I, I even knew this was going to happen, but I didn't see it coming at this point, is when John is automatically, is like zipped back to Earth. Like when that happens, it happens so quick. It was kind of exciting because everything else in this movie was sort of that part when they're on the boat and they're just kind of kind of moseying along is kind of how this movie <laughs> is. Like they just kind of mosey along. And then all of a sudden you just get this moment where he's back on earth, but he's and now explain this to me, Troy. So it's just a copy, right? His body is not transported. It is a copy of the body. Like there's a John Carter of earth and there's a John Carter of Mars. Right. Okay. Yes. So if he dies on Earth, he dies, he on, dies Mars. on Mars. Yes. So when he wakes up on Earth, is like, has there been, because, <laughs> all right, you ready for the science part? Oh boy. <laughs> so, and, Earth, no. Okay. Earth is closer to the sun than Mars. Correct. Okay. Yeah. They explained that okay. in John Carter. Yes. Basum and Jasum, is it? Whatever. Mars and anyway, Earth. <laughs> yes, Mars and Earth. Okay. So Earth is going around the sun. Yeah, yeah. Mars is going around the sun. But one year on Earth is quicker than one year on Mars because it has to go around. Maybe. I don't distances. know. The distance. Well, anyway. So, like, are we to. Are we to conclude that when he wakes up, it seems like all stiff and dusty and all this stuff? Like, are they trying to show that like a long period of time has gone since he's been away because well, the, time is yeah, different the, on the pal dude that was dying after the gut shot when he gets zapped, he's now a skeleton. He's a skeleton. Yes. So okay. obviously there's a time difference. Now I'm, I'm not yeah, exactly yeah. sure it works because let's just say he's on Mars for two or three weeks. I don't know. Uh, then he comes back and it's like, okay, well, how long does it take a guy to get shot in the gut and then become a skeleton? I don't know. Is that a hundred years or seven? Oh, years? I don't. Yeah. I mean, where's your but, science now, Brad? So I, I was thinking like, <laughs> wouldn't it have been cool yeah. if he wakes up and goes out and like there's cars and stuff, you know, and like they show like, Oh, this guy's been gone for a long time. Well, they, but they kind of do. They don't, I know. I, yeah. I know. But like, another thing is, is like, so <laughs> it's a copy right. of him. Yes. If, you were to not eat or drink or lay in the dirt for an extended period of time, you would die. Well, so not unless your copies on Mars. I read that on the internet, but <laughs> he dies on earth. He dies on Mars. It's like, they're not, yeah, no, but he's not, he's just in some stasis thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so long story short, I did like that jarring part where he just is automatically sent back to earth, like real quick. Cause you, if you don't know that this is a two hour and 10 minute movie, you're like, Oh, the movie's going to end and it's going to be happily ever after he's going to be on Mars. And then you're, cause I forgot about that stupid beginning part. And then you're like, Oh no, he's back on earth. And he doesn't have an amulet thing. So how's he going to get back? Right. I mean, I wish I really cared, but I don't, but for this film, I'll continue to watch to see what happens. And again, I don't know how any of this stuff works. Like they were talking about the spaceships. They ride the wind. So they're like, well, they, they got solar panels that power them or something. Yeah. They kept, I don't know. I don't know. I, dude, 
I can't believe you thought that two characters had so much chemistry. Because I, I do. Know. Well, let's let's start anyway. let's start with Taylor okay. Kitsch. So he's he's got the stoic battling with his own inner demons. I really love the use of flashbacks to his original family, and throughout the entire film, everybody is trying to because they know he is a good soldier. You've got the Union saying, "Come fight for us. We're going to go hunt down Apaches." He's like, "Nope, don't want to do it." He goes over to the Tharks, and the Tharks are like, hey, you're our number two. He's like, nope, not going to do that. And the only reason why he is, I don't know, palling around with Willem Dafoe is because he just saved the princess, and if if he's not the number two, then they're going to kill her. And she's like, hey, come fight for my helium place. And he's like, nope, not. So he's a soldier that was part of this devastating war, saw the horrors of war, and he saw him being used to support all of these causes. And as a character, he's like, okay, I am done with that. Because for him, when he went out to serve the cause of some other organization or country, his wife and daughter die. So he's carrying that guilt around. They were burned alive. Yeah. And he's basically saying, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm done with kind of the world. He wants to get his gold, retire, and just be a hermit. And that's it. So at the end of the day, he ends up finding a cause and that causes he falls in love again. So I, I do think Taylor carries all that and he does a really good job of it. I, I think he's really good in this. Um, he's the reluctant hero. He doesn't want to fight for people's causes, but he's just that reluctant hero that gets pushed into that final sequence. And the reason why he's doing it is, is basically for his princess, more or less. And I, I, I really like Lynn Collins. I'll, I'll say this, that effect. I thought she was the best part of the movie, to be honest with you. Well, she's amazing. That effect they do for her eyes with the blue eyes is just stunning. I mean, it, it's, it really is captivating. Um, and I want to see her in her own action movie directed by Donnie Yen. That's what I want to see. <laughs> so she's a, a martial artist in real life. And you see her kick butt in this film. She is fantastic. So yes, I want a. She's whole, not an olive oil character, which is nice, but then she does turn into like bait, and you know, like well, not really bait, but like the the we're gonna you're gonna get married whether or not you want to to save the planet because you don't have a choice because you're a woman sort of deal, and like they hint at her being like smart. And but like yeah, it's not just that she's a professor stuff. or scientist. But I mean, they like push that to the side really like quickly, and that never really comes back oh i i don't think so i i think even he's when the one, he's the one that figures everything out really like they're no, that's not she true. Has to explain it to him but it's him really i like the little i like power. the little sequence when she meets him and she's trying to figure him out she's studying him and asking about like body mask that be different et cetera, et cetera. it's got to be this so i she carries the science stuff just as much as she carries like the face kicking stuff she's fantastic in this so i agree she's she's my favorite thing in the film but i i'm i really like the chemistry that her and taylor have because it's not just a damsel in distress and he out of the gate kind of respects her out, out of that first time when you know she's like you should get behind me and he's like well okay that's pretty cool but well, yeah, because he knows like a good soldier essentially when he sees one. Yeah, and 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 I, I like that chemistry. That the middle part when he you know pushes her off the I don't know what those things were called, um, and they have that little exchange, and you know she's really saying, "Hey, yeah, I ran away." I did that whole sort of monologue or speech she gives. I mean, it's it's very heartfelt. 
I believe these two actually form some kind of connection throughout the entire film. The stuff that's happening around them, I don't think in that middle part is interesting enough because I'm still like, well, where's the space pug or, you know, where's the green Martian? Cause they're cool to look at. Um, but I, anytime that those two are interacting, I buy it and she's fantastic. I, I he does a great job on the reluctant hero and she, she does a great job with the ass kicking princess role. I think, I think they do good. Okay. Um, what'd you think about Willem Dafoe and Samantha Morton? I mean, you, you really are just relying on their voices, you know, the voice acting. I yeah. mean, I, you know, it, it's okay. Like both of them are just fine. Like it's nothing, it, nothing stands out really. Like it, it's, it's a little bit disappointing because I think Willem Dafoe is like very distinct. And I think that's even distinction is a little bit muted in that role. And I, at first I was like, Oh, is that Willem Dafoe? Oh yeah, I guess it is Willem Dafoe. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. They don't do no. I like how he says Virginia. If he would have said, Hey, Spider-Man, I would have, <laughs> Oh, that's Willem Dafoe. But, you know. Okay. No, I, I like how he keeps calling him Virginia through the first part, how he says that word's kind of fun, but Samantha Morton, I mean, you, you get the pain, I guess, of, of her being the daughter, but they, I don't know. They're, they're interesting characters, but I don't know if they do much with them as characters. And then of course, did you, you like, did you like the kind of the, how they were able to make him understand their language is like to feed him that water or whatever. So we didn't have to read I subtitles thought, I thought on what cool. they were saying. I mean, you kind of knew like either a, they're going to speak English or, they're going to have to come up with a way for him to understand. Right. And when, you know, he goes there, they don't speak English. You're like, okay, give me the scene where he learns their language through some magical way. And of course it happened, you know, it's pretty predictable, but I don't know. It would have been cool just to like, I, I guess your $250 million movie, you're not going to have people uh, read um, subtitles from what aliens are saying. So I yeah, get not it. for too much. I mean, you can do it for a little bit, but at some point you got to solve for that, especially for an American audience. Yeah. You, you and I, I know I've worked in a video store and movie theater. I don't know if you have, no. I, know, I know our friend Charlie did. And my favorite thing was always somebody coming up and trying to return a film in a video store and saying, well, I'm not reading my movie. This thing had words at the bottom. So <laughs> it's like, okay, well we'll get you something else. But no, I, I, I like that little twist to it, but um, the the only others to talk about from performance is like Mark Strong and Dominic West, and I I feel like these guys can play the standard bad guy in their sleep. Anymore. Yeah, they're bad guys. They're your typical bad guys. Which you know I don't really understand if I understood the motivation of Mark Strong. So like I have no clue they, what he was doing. They wanted that guy to rule to take over the world because they could control him because he was dumb. I guess. I don't know. I, he gives this long speech about they've they've always been there and they control things and they're doing it for the betterment. I mean, it, you they're get the, the Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get this whole, I don't know, feeling that they're trying to be, you know, the puppet masters pulling the strings and they, they know that either man or Martians or whatever, ultimately going to destroy themselves. So let's just do it cleanly and, and let's make it go this way. So they're really trying to take away what, what would you say like free choice and, and make everything predetermined is what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's not so much that, you know, uh, Dominic West is the main bad guy. It's the fact that these, these baldies, um, are running around saying, Nope, no free will, no choice. It's, it's weird too. Cause like he's always, um, when they're out in public with Mark strong, like he's always blending in. Yes. So, 
because they're always like in the background. They're never they're never seen. Essentially, it's the first time where he's talking to him as Mark Strong, and then the camera kind of pans away, and when they turn, it's like he's like a like a soldier in armor or whatever. It's a little jarring, and then you're like, okay, I think he's like, you know, trans. He's just putting on a facade, you know. Yeah. To show, but it it's a little weird because they never really explain that until later on. Um, I mean, I've seen a movie or two, so I kind of understand what they're doing, but it is jarring. Oh, I agree. Well, so the two hundred and fifty or three hundred million dollars. I mean, it it was not spent on Taylor's salary or Willem Dafoe's salary. This was really all about the visual effects, the set designs, everything else. So I got to ask your opinion. What I mean, what did you think overall in terms of it's a science fiction film taking place on Mars? Did it wow you at any moment? No. Like, I was thinking about all the movies that take place on Mars, you know, and you, uh, this just looks like a desert. Like, Mars is like a red planet. Like, it's red and it has these feel to it. And it's weird because, like, well, the Disney logo is red in the beginning. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> but they don't ever go that red. And, right. they, and it's like, okay, there's water. Like, I don't know. Like I know about Mars, like Marses have water on, like, and they never, do they ever explain like why there's water? Nope. It's just weird. Like think about something is like rudimentary is total recall. Like how cool that Mars was. Or, I mean, even something like this is a Mars, but like Prometheus, like that planet had a distinct look or Avatar. Avatar, or I mean, even the freaking Martian where he's actually on Mars and it's supposed <laughs> to look like Mars. Like yeah. it, it looks a certain way. And when you don't play into that, you either have to do something totally weird and out there and make it crazy, or you go the realistic way. This one, they kind of towed the line where it was just safe and bland. And the only, like the cool thing I liked was like, they had the, the mountain with, there was like some, looked like a temple like built into the side of a mountain or whatever. Right. That was kind of cool. I was like, we could have used more of that, but the rest of it's just like flying ships and helium, which is the dumbest name. Like every time they said helium, I'm like, why is, why can we not have thought of something it's the better? Source, than it's the source material, man. I know. So, I know. But I, again, so here's the thing. I don't know how you feel. I, I get annoyed when films are trying to be close to the science, but don't exactly hit it. For me, those stand out a little bit. So if you're saying, oh, well, this is how Mars is, or this is how physics work or something of that nature. And you go, okay, well, it's trying to be realistic. And all of a sudden something sticks out because of plot or something else. They had to defy the laws of physics or logic or the science of it. And when everything else is accurate and then that thing comes along, it really takes me out of the film. I like the movies when they're just, you know, like F you science, here we go. And they're just going to create their own. Cause that's world. your motto is F you science. Absolutely. It, like the, the latest King Kong versus Godzilla. I, I got so excited when, you know, they visit a guy who wrote a book about there's like an earth inside the earth. And then when or you or the go, fact that Godzilla can look at look through a hole and see, uh, or Godzilla can see King Kong through a hole, yeah. When he's at the, yeah, I'm, I'm like, but, okay, I'm in because you're you're making yeah. up your own world, your world. You're, you're doing these rules, and then when they go in to you know the middle of the earth, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, it's daylight. Well, where's the sun? Where's, how does that work there? But you're like, it doesn't matter. This is this is their world. 
they just sort of put that stuff to the side and go, we're going to make up the rules. But see how like that had a distinct look and was cool. Like it, it had an upside down yes. and all this stuff. And and that's what's missing from this in the background, because you're right, you get a desert and you get that stuff in the water. But I do appreciate the fact that they just said, you know what, we're not going to play by your traditional, this is what Mars would look like and all the other stuff. They're trying to build their own world. I like those kind of movies. And the yeah. thing, the things in here that work for me, I mean, I've said it a couple of times, it's the Tharks. The, the stuff like the Thark hatchlings, um, the Thark culture, and that creature design, I absolutely love. I think it's unique. It's interesting. They do a lot with it. Um, there's a whole I, sequence when John Carter is fighting like a small army of rogue Tharks, and bodies are piling up, and it, it's a really great visual sequence. It happens in the middle. I, I was surprised Disney let it happen because it's pretty violent because there's just stack and stacks and stacks of Tharks where he's just cutting heads off and stuff like that. Yeah, they he decapitates that one, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love um, everything I, Tharks I will, in here. I will say that the CGI on the Tharks hasn't held up the test of time very well. It, it doesn't look great. It looked good um, for 2012. I know, but like I'm watching this movie in 2021, and it, it it's okay. Yeah, but it doesn't. It I I liked it. I but I liked the design of it. I really appreciated that. Um, I, I really thought they had an awesome space pug. I was a big fan of that. Cool space monkeys. You put awesome space monkeys in there and I'm sold. And I, I think they were apes. Look, <laughs> we've, we've <laughs> we, been over we, this again. We have learned that apes and monkeys are different. They are monkeys. And I think okay. even John Carter calls them monkeys. So we're going um, with monkeys. Okay. Uh, I, I do like the spacecraft design that they were trying to do. It's a mix of science fiction that you would have seen in the 60s with pirate ships. And the pyrotechnics and stuff that happen as a result of it, I think it's a good blend of CGI. With it's kind of like a dragonfly-esque a yeah, little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good way. And I, I thought it worked. Um, I like the little, I don't know, air battles. Again, I just never sequence. knew who was a good guy or who was a bad guy. In Star Wars, TIE Fighter, bad guy, X-Wing, good guy. Like They're two distinct designs that you can always know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And this one, I had no idea. I agree. And I don't know if that's intentional because I don't think John Carter knew who was good or bad. He saw a girl falling in the beginning. He's like, Oh, I'm going to go save that. So I, at the end of the day, I think of like the, the Martian humans and then the green Martians. And to me, that's okay. So it's the Tharks. But again, I liked a lot of the things in the film it was missing the the thing I would go back to is Avatar. Avatar had some amazing, unique creatures, but that world of Pandora was just freaking amazing. Not just the creatures and the people and everything else, but that environment. And they should have done something with this desert. Just anything. Yes, anything. Anything. <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice to not see brown. <laughs> no, I agree. Or tan. Or tan. And yes. again, that middle section, you're looking at the space pug and the Martian, and that's cool. And you're watching the romance and relationship development. And and honestly, for me, if if it weren't for those two characters and me buying in to the princess and John Carter, that that middle part would have really drug for me. But I did like them. I like their on screen chemistry. And so it, it got me through that second part. But I, I'm with you. The third part, again, the first part's my favorite. The middle part, eh, it's a little shaky. That third part, it should have been bigger. 
I do like how it ended and the little twist at the end. And it's just unique enough to stand out to it. I mean, yeah. I mean, so, okay. Are we to believe that John Carter can jump really high because of the gravity change on Mars? Well, that and his bone density and I mean, they kind of make allusion to that. Like the okay. physiologically he's different than everybody else. Plus the different gravity. Okay. So kind of like the whole Superman thing, right? Yeah, but he's just, okay. He's just a man on earth. Right. He's a, and it's a he's copy a of his. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome but he's story. a copy of his self on right. earth. On Mars, okay, identical copy. I really good. Like the. Do you think like if they kept making like copies of copies, this is just like a (laughs) weird multiplicity thing? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I think would happen. So Um, if it's John Carter of Pluto, like he's just like (laughs) trying to lick the doorknob or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, anything else? I I feel like we've talked about the film itself. Yeah, Uh, I. Again, it's it's hard because I, I invested so much time and energy learning about everything that happened before this movie came out, and and I guess to to that extent, most people don't have that because they're not insane like we are. But just sitting down and watching this, like I cannot get through my head like how insanely boring this is and how the plot just. <laughs> Again, Buckaroo Banzai, I think, is an easier film to understand than they were trying to pack so much information into one movie that, like, it is just so bloated with characters and this race and this race and this and that and this rays of light thing and all this stuff. And you're just like, okay, like, Maybe we didn't need to go so huge on the first one. I mean, I'm, they had already had kind of two more in the can kind of planned. So I, I just, I don't know. Like it, it, it's, it feels like three movies packed into one movie where we're still going super slow, but we're like trying to exposit so much information to make up three movies is what I guess I'm, I'm trying to say. I, I think Buckaroo Banzai is kind of an interesting comparison because with Buckaroo Banzai, I don't think they intended for you to follow the plot or the story to the extent that you would know everything that's going on. You're almost trying to catch up with everybody, and that's half of the fun of it. So here's all these aliens. Here's the ninth dimension, eighth dimension, whatever. Then here's the jet car. I mean, they're throwing so much at you that if you if you catch on, great. If you don't, keep going, right? With this one, I do think Stanton and you know his fellow screenwriters are looking at this and saying, well, we do want the audience to follow what's going on, which faction is doing what, why this is important. And you even get Willem Dafoe you know, opening up with sort of a description of Mars and Barsoom and all this other stuff. So at all points of the film from the very start to the end, they're trying to describe the world, what's going on. And from their perspective, I think Stanton is really trying super hard for the audience to grasp onto it. So you get a lot more, um, you know, we're standing in the desert and we're going to give you some expository language and, and we really want you, you know, to get this portion of it. But crew bonds, I didn't care. But Gru Banzai was on to the next thing. And if you figured it out, great. If not, just hold on. We're going to, you're on for the ride. 
this one, I think there was a little bit more care and, you know, Stanton wanting you to understand the story. Yeah. I just like Stanton, you know, he helped with finding Nemo and that's such an easy premise of a movie that is, you know, a lost fish and his dad trying to find him. And even John Carter is not that complicated. It's a guy from earth on Mars who, who helps try to again, but then you're like, I I don't know. What is it? What is he trying to do on Mars? What what is he? I think this is an issue of, you've got two things at play here. You've got the characters that are trying to drive the story, right? And their Mm -hmm. decisions, but then you have the mythos and the world building. Those two things are always at odds in this film and they, they don't blend seamlessly. You can tell when you've got a scene and the characters are talking and they're making motivational choices that are going to affect the plot. And then you've got scenes where characters are telling you the mythos and the world building. You can 100%. They don't blend. So I do think the problem with the screenplay is they go back and forth to this is the point we're going to kind of build the world out. Here's the mythos because we got two other movies coming. And then this is the point where the characters are making the decision to advance the story. Yeah. So I, I know that's a big problem. That's, that's why I say the structure and the pacing is an issue here, but it really comes down to, I mean, this is not a perfect film. Like, like I said, it, you've got, <laughs> that's a, yes, yeah. that is an understatement. You've got films like star Wars, uh, stargate avatar. I mean, all of those films out there that are trying to basically borrow from the same stranger in a strange land sort of premise, right? Superman, Superman, obviously flash Gordon, all this stuff. So all of these came from the same source material, but can they successfully within this franchise blend that world building with the character development? Eh, It's kind of clunky aspects of it for me work, but I can totally understand why somebody comes at this. I mean, I was really hoping as much as I read about this and going, man, I remember seeing in the theaters and had a really good time with it. This is one of those movies I would love to champion and go, you guys are so wrong. (laughs) Like everybody should run out and see this. But, you know, at the end of the day, I would go, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know why they made such a big deal out of the budget when at the end of the day, it's kind of like if, if you throw shade at it because it's got plot problems or it, it can't make that blend between the mythos and the story. Yeah, I totally get where your frustration is there. I, I could care less if they spent $200 versus $200 million on it. Who's this movie for? It's for the teenage boys. Okay. I mean, it, 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 if you go back and look at what Stanton wanted to do, I mean, again, Stanton came to this through the Marvel comics. He eventually went back and read the books. Uh, everybody who gravitated to this, it was your, hey, I like Flash Gordon. Hey, I like this. Great, you're going to like John Carter because that's where it all came from. And Disney looked at this and said, we got the princesses done. Like, we, we, we got the market on that. We don't have enough boy franchises. We got pirates and guys stuck in a computer game. We need something else. So that's exactly who this film was. And then, hey, let's go and acquire the Space Wizard franchise. We're done. We don't need John Carter yeah. anymore. Yep. Well, you ready to ask the question? You asked me. Oh, okay. Um, so, Brad, you got to pick this episode. I think we're on episode 45. And you picked 2012's John Carter. I'm going to just say John Carter of Mars because that's yeah. what it ends with. So is John Carter of Mars a bomb? Not only is John Carter of Mars a bomb, but it is a bomb. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I really give sci-fi a pass on a lot of things. Uh, like I've said, it's 
probably my favorite genre. And even this one, for someone who is pretty lenient on my sci-fi, this one, because I have seen it one and a half times in the past two days, and I still have, like, I, I need someone to like explain to me exactly what's going on in this movie. And um, I think they waste the best character in the movie at the end of the film to be kind of plot, a plot device, which is really sad, but you know, it, it, it is a fascinating film to study and to look at. But at the end of the day, when I simply watching it, um, it was tough. So it is a bomb. Okay. Well, I'm so glad. I feel like we're back to normal, back to normal, we're back to normal. Uh, the 47 Ronin thing really just boggled my mind. But listen, this thing has got pacing problems, especially in the middle. I love the first half more than the back half. The, the biggest thing for me, though, is I love the world building of the core characters, not the world building in general, but I like the stuff that they're setting up around John Carter, um, Deja Thoris, and Tars, and obviously the space pug, because I'm a big fan of space pug. I can immediately see the attraction material. I know why everybody gravitated towards this and said, hey, pull from this. This is going to be a great story element. I'd love to see more of this universe and these characters, those characters specifically. It, for me, it's middle of the road science fiction and adventure, but it has enough to kind of tip it in the plus category. So whereas you were talking about 47 Ronin being that film that you can just kind of play, you're not really thinking about it, you can enjoy it. Maybe it's that Saturday, Saturday afternoon, you know, it's just there. I, I would put this type of film in the category for me. I'm, I love science fiction adventure, especially when they're trying to world build and not stick to something that's real and anything that's borrowing from, you know, this time period, I'm always going to have fun with Obviously the sun moon stars did not align with this thing. That whole backstory I find is super fascinating. I actually think this film does need to be revisited. If there's still world building for stuff like Stargate, I think this needs some investment and love from the sci-fi community. And Stargate is a hundred times better than this movie. I don't necessarily agree with that. I like Oof. Stargate, but for me, Stargate is at the same level of John Carter because Stargate has a huge middle section problem. Like I remember the beginning of Stargate and I remember the back end of Stargate, but I remember Jack of the middle outside of them sitting around the desert talking. That's all the middle of Stargate is. So Stargate and John Carter have more in common for me in terms of a pacing and structure standpoint than anything else. Um, I'm moving Stargate up on our list now. Wait, it's a, not a bomb. It made a crap ton of money and TV series and everything else. Uh, okay. <laughs> you give me a weird look. But hey, look, if anything, this movie made me go out and find John Carter Warlord of Mars, the Marvel Comics um, I guess the omnibus is out of print and I had to go find that, that big tome. So I've got that coming. So I'm, I'm interested to dive in and I would like to go back and read the novels. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, it's probably no different than 47 Ronin in terms of entertainment, the way you looked at that thing. Um, but for me, John Carter has a better cast, uh, and more interesting visuals. What? It says 53% on Rotten Tomatoes for our, our buddy Stargate. Yeah, but but it made a ton of money. Yeah, I know. Okay, we could we could do all right. We'll throw it on there because critics didn't like it. <clears throat> yep, but no, I I don't think it's a bomb. But I'm not I'm not out there saying it's the best movie reviewed. It's the best science fiction. It's middle of the road sci fi, and I had I had a lot of fun watching it even by myself. So man, 
It put me to the man. That was a great Friday night was one of the best nights of sleep I've had in a long time. Oh my I was goodness. Out. Really? So thanks, John Carter. I'm I I'm I can't tell you how happy I am. I mean <laughs> I'm I'm not saying you're always the naysayer and I'm always positive. I I think if anything, this uh uh, this last, I don't know, 44 episodes, well, especially the last 10 episodes, I think have really thrown um, me for a loop and things I thought you would like that you didn't and probably vice versa. I, I would walk into something going, I'm going to love this film. And I walk out of it going, yeah, I, I didn't love it that much. So uh, should we, what? What's up next? That is a good question. So this next pick, uh, since I get to do it, kind of came about from an earlier episode that we did many, many moons ago. And it was the one that Angel was on when we talked about Zodiac. That's episode 12, by the way. Episode 12, okay. So when we were talking about Zodiac, obviously I had to go back and watch the the first Dirty Harry film starring Clint Eastwood. And you can't just watch one. So I went ahead and watched all of them and watched some of the documentaries. And I was really fascinated with where that series went and I was super fascinated with the last one. So it is kind of a bomb. And it's going to be super interesting to talk about that in the context of the other films that came out that summer. Because it was a summer film. And it was expected to be a big action um, extravaganza. So we get to talk about all the films that came out around the same time as Dirty Harry. It's going to be a fun conversation. But we're going to talk about The Deadpool. Starring none other than Clint Eastwood. And not Deadpool, not Ryan Reynolds Deadpool. Not the Ryan Reynolds. We're talking the Clint Eastwood Deadpool. So it's the it's the last Dirty Harry film, and it has um, some fantastic cameos in it from Guns N' Roses and Jim Carrey, and uh, Liam Neeson plays a significant role in it as well. Confession. Okay. I have never seen it. You've never, well, hold on. You've never seen the Deadpool, or you've never seen a Dirty Harry film? No, I've never seen the Deadpool. Oh, okay, cool. How many how many of the Dirty Harry films have you seen? All of them except. So you watched all of them, but you just never watched the last one? You know, I kind of, I don't know. I don't know, man. I was, I can't watch Pulp Fiction every day and watch the last Dirty Harry film, you know? I've, okay. I've got to make choices. So. No, it's cool. I'm excited then. Yeah. I, I've, yeah. I'm going to go watch it again. I just watched it, what was it, round episode 12, so... This will be cool. All right. So, Brad, if anybody wants to share their thoughts on John Carter or tell us that they fell asleep maybe during the first 15, 20 minutes when we were going through like the business side. <laughs> Sorry, folks. We just I don't we, get to talk about that stuff very much. I, hey, I, I'm with you, man. I was I was all excited about um, numbers and how movies are made and you know, how their revenue, but I, you, you and I both find that fascinating. And obviously that's kind of what we do for our day jobs a little bit. So that's kind of one of the reasons why we started doing this. But anyway, yes, that is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Find us on all social media as well. Picked up a lot of followers this week on both Instagram and uh, Twitter. So thank you for all of our new followers. If you actually become listeners as well, um, Facebook are on there as well. What else? Joy? No. Hey, keep sending thank the you, recommendations. Uh, Kung in. Fu Bob. Yeah, he he sent a recommendation in too. So he wanted oh. us to discuss the Ninth Configuration, which is a William Freakin film. Oh, okay. So we'll add that to the list. I've, I've I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. I'm I'm really curious to revisit that one. We added a lot of 
uh, our list just keeps getting longer and longer. Hey, I'm Battle. good with that. That just that keeps us going, right? Battleship, right? That was one of them. Battleship, yeah. I'm excited. All right. Well, hey, look, um, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, afternoon, or the evening. I hope you're having an awesome day. Thank you for listening. Please share the podcast. And if you happen to be on iTunes, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. We love all the input. We love all the interaction. And we will be back next week with Dirty Harry and talking about the last Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool. So we'll see you next week. Thank you. Have a nice day.